That's just what I want to do on Friday is leave Dallas when it's 75. <laughs> Come to McLeod where it's 25. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. I really want to thank the committee to, uh, for inviting me here this weekend. Uh, I can't think of any place I'd rather be, really, than in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And a convention with, with uh, a bunch of drunks I don't know yet and hope to know in the future. And I thought it was really interesting the, uh, the way you did your count. Up. <laughs> Where you had the Al-Anon stand-up too, that was great. And I guess that couple, is that, are you guys Al-Anon and alcoholics over here with 40 years? Or are you both alcoholics? Who came in first? Yeah, right, there you go. <laughs> those Al-Anons, you know. I'll tell you, I, I love that program, but I never used to go to those Al-Anon meetings. You know, they, I'd, I'd go to these conventions and they give you that little, they have those Al-Anon luncheons. They give you this little lunch ticket to go to those Al-Anon, and I'd never go. And then I, uh, a few years ago, okay, I'm single, right? And I think, well, that's where the women are. <laughs> <laughs> so I go to that Al-Anon luncheon and uh, a lot of women there, a lot of women go to those Al-Anon luncheons. And uh, I'm sitting there and I'm listening to a friend of mine speak I'd never heard speak before. I've known her for a long time, and she's telling her story, and she's talking about trying to stab her husband in the back. And how when she got an Al-Anon, she was talking to her Al-Anon sponsor, and an Al-Anon sponsor shared with her how she'd tried to suffocate her husband. I'm looking around that meeting, all the women. <laughs> I'll stick with the alcoholic women, thank you. I mean, demon and Weird. So that was a weird convention. That was out in California. And they got this uh, they got this convention center and it's attached to this mall, shopping mall, right? So you got this big shopping mall there, and I'm out there on Saturday in between meetings just eating some frozen yogurt, people watching. And uh, here come these two guys from the convention. They got the name back. They're punk rockers. Right? Y'all got punk rockers up here in Minnesota? Yeah. Okay, this guy's got a green spike going out this way. And he's got a purple spike going straight up in the air. And he's got a pink spike going out here. And uh, he's with his girlfriend. They're holding hands. And they're dressed kind of like the way I used to dress when I lived under the bridge, okay? <laughs> they're just walking down the mall there. Right next to where I'm sitting is this sunglass boutique. All they got in there is sunglasses, right? So the guy goes in there and he puts on these sunglasses. And I'm watching them. They got the name badge on there from AA. He puts on these sunglasses. And his girlfriend looks at him and she says, take those off. They make you look stupid. <laughs> Just a distorted perception of reality, you know? <laughs> Just distorted. And one of those got that problem. Those normal people got that problem, distorted perception. Right next to that sunglass boutique is this earring joint. They got accessories and stuff. And they sell earrings. And they got a big sign in the window that says, Ears pierced while you wait. What's the alternative to that? I mean, what do you, you got to wait. You got to wait to have your ears pierced, you know? You got to drop your ears off, come back and pick them up, you know? Yeah. Just distorted perception. We got that in Dallas. They got that distorted perception. They got a new boutique down there. It's a, it's a chain now. They got like 10 locations. It's really, really become a big deal. Uh, it's called <laughs> condoms to go. <laughs> you can't use them there, okay? No. No, sir. Go through the drive-thru, pick them up, and go somewhere else. You can't use them there. It's just a bad place to use them there. It's just distorted perception of reality. 
You know? And I got the distorted perception of reality. You know, that's, that's been the major problem in my life uh, since I was a kid growing up. Just, and the book talks about that. The book says that, that uh, it's a great obsession of, of all abnormal drinkers to drink like normal people. You know? And I read that, and, uh, and I, I kind of, you know, I don't know whether I believe that or not. I don't think, they said, you know, we, science may someday accomplish that, but as of yet, we can't do that. We, we don't have a pill. I want to tell you, if they came out with a pill today that would help you drink like a, allow you to drink like a normal person, there's not an alcoholic in this room that would take it. Wouldn't take Why would you take it? Wouldn't take that. I mean, you want to drink like a normal person drinks? <laughs> Come on, give me a break. I never want to drink like that. You know how they drink? I married a normal drinker. I don't want to drink like her. That's crazy. It's crazy to drink like they drink. We're driving around one Sunday in August before we were married, and it's August in Dallas. It's 110 degrees, and we're driving around. She says to me, I, I feel like a beer. Can I get a beer? I said, yeah. We can get you a beer. I said, well, you want to go into some place? And she said, no, just get one for the road. I'll just drink it on the way home. I just feel like a beer. So I stopped in this liquor store. I went in there, bought a six-pack of beer. I come out. She looks at me. She says, what, what did you do? And so we said, you wanted a beer. She said, you bought a six-pack. I said, well, I don't think they sell singles. <laughs> do they sell singles? Has anybody bought a single? I don't think they sell them that way. She says, yeah, they sell them that way. So she drank one beer. She drank one beer. We go home. She puts it in the fridge. That was in August. Okay? It's Christmas time. We're having a party at her house. I go over there. I open the fridge. Get some stuff out of the fridge. I notice there are four beers on the bottom shelf at Christmas. I said, that can't be those beers. I said, are these, what are these? She said, those are, those are beer. I said, I know, but those aren't the beers we bought in August. She says, yeah. She says, Daddy had one. He came up here and had pizza and likes to have beer with his pizza, so he drank one. <laughs> you want to drink like that? <laughs> I don't want to drink like that. That's, that's crazy, drink like that. You know, when I started drinking, I'll tell you, I never drank when I was a kid growing up. Never drank. I didn't, didn't drink in high school, didn't drink in college. Didn't drink at all. Didn't drink. Just didn't drink. Wasn't the deal. And I uh, got, got married when I was a senior in college, just like you're supposed to. You know, you get married when you're in college. So I got married. Got out and went in the insurance business in Salt Lake City, Utah. Things were pretty good in Salt Lake. I'm in the insurance business. Married. Got this little wife. And I was scared to death. Just petrified. And I found around in a butt. I don't know what I was afraid of, but I was afraid. I'd go in the office in the morning. They'd come in the office. They'd give me these little pink message pads. Say, what, what are these? Secretary says, well, those are your phone messages. I'd say, who, who from? She says, I don't know. So what do you think they want? She says, I guess they want to buy insurance, you know? <laughs> think from me? I mean, phones are scary things. Aren't phones scary? They're sc- I'll tell you, you, you young alcoholics, I tell you, you, got, you have no idea. You have no idea the stark terror of being alcoholic with a telephone and no caller ID. 
I mean, you want to talk about a scary time. Just try to be drunk with no caller ID. That phone, ring, 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 Jesus. You look at that phone, who is it, who is it, who is it, you know. <laughs> we finally got answering machines. That was pretty good until they wouldn't leave a message. You know, you try to screen your calls so people would call you. They'd pick it up and then they wouldn't leave them. Then you got to go around all day thinking, who was that that called? Who called and hung up? It's them. That's who it is. It's them. Terrible. I'm going to tell you, all that technology, that answering machines and caller ID, all that technology, that was invented by alcoholics for alcoholics. Make it easy on us. But I finally ran into a buddy named Stuart. Stuart drank. And I liked, I, I liked hanging out with Stuart, hanging out in the bar with Stuart. And, and he would drink. And uh, I'd drink Coke. Go down to the bar and hang out. See, I, I loved it. Loved everything about going down to the bar with Stuart. He'd drink whiskey, I'd drink Coke, you know. See, you can be anything you want to be in the bar. Anything you want to be. You go down to the bar, you hang out, we get some women over the table. They say, what, what do you do? I like to do a lot of stuff, you know. Sometimes I'd retire. They say, what do you do? Oh, I retired. 24-year-old retiree. <laughs> so you must have made a lot of money. Oh, yeah, I did. That's why I drive a Toyota, <laughs> you know. I like to be the mystery guy. I like, my favorite, they say, what do you do? I, I love to be the mystery guy, you know, where you don't tell them what you do. You just say, oh, nothing. I really don't. What do you mean nothing? You got to do something. What do you do? I really can't talk about it, okay? I just can't talk about it. Drop it now. All right, I'll tell you what. I'll give you one. This is all I'm going to say. This is all I'm going to say about it. Let's just say I work for the government, okay? That's it. That's all, all right, one more thing, one more thing. If I leave here real quick... You better follow me because there's some shit going down here tonight. That's all I'm going to say about it. That's all I'm going to say about it. I love to be that guy, you know, never tell him what you do. Finally, when my second child was born, Stuart called me up and congratulated me. I had my first drunk. And God, it was a great drunk. Oh, it was one. He called me up and says, well, I'm taking out night. We're drinking. So we're out drinking. Now, in Utah, you've got to go to a private club to get any, any drinks. So we got to this private club in Salt Lake called the Winery. It's no longer there. It was right across from the Salt Palace. You walked down these steps, walked into the winery. Lights flashing, live band playing in there, women. And I had my first drunk. And it was a great drunk. Loved it. And I just drank whatever they put in I don't know what I drank. They just bring a drink over. They bring a drink over. Dark, dark drink. Got a cherry in it. I drink it down. Next drink's light. Somebody buys me a light-colored drink. They bring it. Let's give him that. So they bring a light drink over. Got a twist around it. I drink it down. Just drank whatever they put in. Had a great drunk. Danced. Oh, God, danced all night. Oh. <clears throat> danced with two lesbians. <clears throat> okay, well, they're out there dancing together, you know. And I thought, they probably want me to join them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I went out there, and then they left together. And, and... But I learned something. No rejection. When you're drunk, you're just drunk. No rejection. Went down, sat down, drank the next drink. You know, had a great drunk. Got up the next morning, no hangover. Really felt pretty good. A little tired, a little wrung out, but I'm, I'm okay. Stuart, I called up Stuart. I said, Stuart, I had a ball. He said, you did. You flat had a good time. I said, well, do you think you're going to have a drink tonight? He said, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. I may stop by and have one. I said, what time? He said, well, hell, I got to work till 3 o'clock. I said, why don't we meet at 3.30? You know, so I meet him at 3.30, got drunk again, you know, and uh, that was, that's my story. I just got drunk. 
I just get drunk. I like to drink to get drunk. That's what I do. That's why I would never drink. I would never take that pill to drink normally. Because I don't want to drink that way. I want to get drunk. That's what I do. I drink for the effect. You know? And, and I'm getting in trouble immediately. I'm getting in trouble. People are starting to tell me, you got a real problem. You know, you, you're an alcoholic. I say, well, what's an alcoholic? How do you know you're an alcoholic? What is that? And the mothers were really getting mad about drunk drivers back then in the 70s. They're just getting organized, starting to put out advertisements and articles in the newspaper. I read this article in the newspaper. It said only one in 2,000 drunk drivers gets picked up for DWI. I read that article and I thought, hell, that's pretty good odds. <laughs> one in 2,000? I'll take that. If I get drunk every single day, I got like five, six years, so I got to worry about getting picked up. You know? I've been, dry, I've been drinking six months, get my first DWI. What are the odds of that? You know? So I'm, I, I think, as I'm in the drunk tank, I think, well, if one, this means I can go like next 10, 12 years, so I got to get my, my next DWI. You know? Didn't work though. I kept getting, I kept getting in all kinds of trouble. People are telling me I'm an alcoholic. I said, "What's an alcoholic? How do you really know you're an alcoholic?" They said, "It's a disease." I said, "Well, then let's go to the doctor." Well, we really can't do that. Well, how do you know you're an alcoholic? Can't we go get some blood analysis with this disease? Run it through, you know, get some proper diagnosis? No, we can't do that. Well, how do you know you're an alcoholic? Can't we go get like a, a CAT scan or MRI or something like that? No, can't do. It. Well, how do you know you're an alcoholic? Oh, yeah, here's the deal. Y'all want me to quit drinking. What happens 20 years from now, I find out I'm not an alcoholic? I've blown 20 years, I could have been drinking. I'm not going to take that kind of risk. Just not going to take that kind of risk. You know? Not going to do it. So they say, well, you drink too much. As soon as they told me I drank too much, I know I'm not an alcoholic. See, because I never drank too much in my life. In fact, I'll tell you something. There's not an alcoholic in this room that ever drank too much. That's impossible. See, I am an alcoholic, but not because I drank too much. I'm an alcoholic because I couldn't drink enough. You ever drink enough? Oh, yeah, I can see somebody from this group. You go out there to the bar, you have a couple cocktails. Bartender says, would you care for another cocktail? Oh, golly, uh, Saturday tomorrow. Hmm. I got golf time. Uh, uh, no, I think I've had enough. <laughs> Never had enough, you know. You can't drink enough. I go to the bar with Stuart at noon, right? We start drinking at noon. You ever do that? Start drinking at noon? Now it's midnight. I'm in the same damn bar for 12 hours drinking. And I'm drunk. And I know it. Hell, I'm talking about it. Stuart. God, I'm drunk. He says, me too. Can I buy another drink? <laughs> so you hadn't had enough. Well, if you can't drink enough, it's impossible to drink too much. You'll never do it. See, normal drinkers, the Al-Anon folks, they can drink enough. And so occasionally, but not very often, They might drink too much. But if you're an alcoholic, like I'm an alcoholic, and you can't drink enough, you never drink too much. And so when they tell me I drink too much, how can that be? I'm not drinking too much. 
My problem is I can't drink enough. That's the, and that's why they don't understand that. And that's why I don't understand them. That's why I won't take that pill. Because I don't want to drink enough. I want to drink. To, in fact, when I drink, an incredible thing happens. When I drink, it's like a little bomb that goes off inside. And it fills every empty pore I got. And I'm complete. In fact, when I'm drinking, I'm happy, joyous, and free. When I'm not drinking, man, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. And to become okay, I drink. And you want me to quit? Why would you quit? Why would you quit? When when you're drinking, you're okay. In fact, when I drink, you know those promises we got in the book? After step nine, we got those 12 promises in the book. When I drink, you wouldn't believe what happens. Those promises come true in my life. Happens every single time. It's incredible. I don't know about you, but after that very first drink, I begin to know a new freedom and a new happiness. It's just incredible. After two or three drinks, I don't know about you, but that fear of financial insecurity just kind of slips away. <laughs> we don't need money. We got checks, you know. That's all right. <laughs> I don't know about you, but after six or seven drinks, I intuitively know how to handle situations that are baffling me. <laughs> you know? Those promises are coming true in my life, baby. And after 12 or 13 drinks, I don't know about you, but it becomes real clear that alcohol is doing for me what I can't do for myself, you know? And you want me to quit. Why would you quit? I'm not going to quit. Now, here's the reality. When I first came into AA and they read me those promises, I thought, what kind of Mickey Mouse deal is that? What I really need is a promise. I need a promise of a job. I need a promise of a place to live and, a, and, and, a, and a, some money. That's what I need. You want a promise? You need that. Those twelve promises there that don't. The truth is, I have always, my whole life, insisted on having those promises. I demand having those promises in my life. In fact, I want it so bad I will drink to get them. Alcohol gave me the illusion of having those promises. You can go through every one of those promises, and alcohol did that for you. And if I don't find a way to get those promises in my life today without drinking, I will drink again to get them. It's that important for the alcoholic to have those promises that you're going to drink to get them. The only way to get those promises without drinking is to work the steps. So you can jack around with that all you want. You can hang out in the AA boardroom all you want. You can do all that talk you want about AA. But if you don't work the steps, you're going to drink. Because you're going to get to the point where you need those promises. And you'll do anything to get them, including drink. I didn't know any of that then. All I know is that why would I quit when alcohol is doing that for me? I'm not going to quit, you know? Just not going to quit. I didn't know all that then. But that's what alcohol was doing for me. And, and I'm sitting there in, in Salt Lake City. <laughs> and I got a lot of problems. Got a lot of problems. But alcohol is not one of them. You know, they give you that test. Does alcohol cause problems in your life? No. Alcohol doesn't. Now, I got problems, but alcohol's not one of them. Does alcohol cause problems in your marriage? No. Now, I got problems in my marriage. It was philosophical. We should have talked about it before we got married, but we didn't. We just got married. 
my wife was under the impression that when you get married, she wanted to be married, you know, like seven days a week. <laughs> All week long, she wanted to be married. I thought we ought to be married like five days a week. Separate on Friday, party all weekend, go home Monday. That's kind of the way I wanted to be married. She just was real adamant about seven-day marriage. You know? Alcohol had nothing to do with that. Does alcohol cause problems at work? No. Now, I got problems at work, but alcohol wasn't one of the problems. My, it was, again, it was, my boss kept trying to, he wanted me to work during the day. Okay? I mean, like all day long. I'm a night person. I kind of like to start rolling about five, five o'clock. Happy hours, about the time I kick in gear, you know. Should have got a night job, is what I should have got, but I didn't, didn't get a night job. Because if you work nights, you can't drink, you know, so it's a real problem on that deal. It's just, just a, a problem. Does alcohol cause you legal problems? No. Now, I got a lot of legal problems, but alcohol, I was thoroughly convinced. I don't know what I'd done to make them mad, but I was thoroughly convinced that the police department in Salt Lake was mad at me. And they had my picture and my license plate on every dashboard in Salt Lake City. Because when I'm I can be doing nothing wrong. This is the honest truth. I'm doing nothing wrong. I'm walking down the street. If a cop drives by, sees me, I, I get arrested. It happened to me. I'm walking down the street one night. Cop drove by, arrested me. I'm just walking down the street. Okay, it, it was 3.30 in the morning. But you, you ought to be able to walk down the street of America... 3.30 in the morning if you want to. It's free country. You can walk down any street you want, 3.30. Okay. All right. There's a bad rainstorm going on. You got to be able to walk in the rain, 3.30. All right. Okay, I didn't have a shirt on. But <laughs> you got to be able to walk in the rain without a shirt, 3.30 in the morning if you want to. I asked the cop why he stopped. Okay, oh. okay I had a gash in my head. I had blood running down my head. That was not my fault. I'd been in a cab earlier. I told the cabbie to stop. I want to get that cab driver did not stop quick enough. I got out of that moving cab, hit my head on the ground, and I had blood running. Cops said I stopped to see if you're okay. I thought you'd been mugged. You know, found out who I was, arrested me. You know, but alcohol is not the problem at all. I had a timing problem. <laughs> Timing's a bad problem a lot of alcoholics got because your timing's off. And the problem when your timing is off, you don't know whether you need to speed up or slow down. You know, I mean, I'd get arrested and I'd think, Jesus, you know, just two minutes. If I'd have been just two minutes late, that, that cop would have been by that intersection, wouldn't have seen me, and I'd have been okay. Or maybe I should have been two minutes fast, and I'd have been by there before he got there, you know. It's my timing is just... So I'm sitting in the bar, and I think, I wonder if it's time for me to go. You know? I always stayed, you know, I just always stayed. But my ti- bad timing problem, bad timing problem. I finally figured out my real problem. My brother told me. My brother said, you better straight up and fly right because the folks think you're crazy. And they're going to lock you up. They've got a judge ready to lock you up. They're going to sign the commitment papers. They're going to lock you up. And that's when I figured out my real problem. Uh, see, Utah, okay, it's at a high altitude. Did you all see the Olympics? I mean, it's in the mountains. It snows up there just like it does here. There's a lot of snow. It's high altitude. Well, scientific fact, people who live at high altitudes for prolonged periods of time have thinner blood than people live at low altitudes. Well, I was living in Utah my whole life. I got to have thin blood. If you party hard on thin blood, you have a problem. What I need to do is get to sea level. 
thicken up my blood, and I'll probably be okay. You know? So I called a buddy who lives in Seattle, that sea level. I'm telling about these problems I got. He said, man, take a year off. Come up here. You can stay with me and Gail and put your life back together and, and straighten out. I said, well, I don't want to impose on you and Gail and your five kids. He says, no one position. He says, I'll be there Tuesday. You know? So I moved to Seattle. And I'm living up in Seattle, not doing anything in Seattle, just doing a little drinking, working on thickening up my blood. And uh, the next logical thing you want to do when you're in that situation, hell, you're going to want to gamble. <laughs> you really are. Best time to gamble is when you're unemployed. And so uh, I started playing poker up there. They had poker houses. It was legal. And I started playing poker. And then I thought, started running down to Nevada to play in the casinos in Nevada. And I finally said, who am I kidding? I'm just going to move to Nevada. Fulfill my destiny. So I moved to Nevada. That's below sea level. And uh, you really get thick blood in Nevada. <laughs> Bounced around Las Vegas. For, I ended up in Reno, Tahoe area. And uh, not doing anything, just doing a little drinking, playing a little poker, working on thickening up my blood. And, and an old drinking buddy from Salt Lake called me. He said, come over this weekend. We're all going out. Shouldn't have gone. Doing real good in Nevada. But I drive over to Salt Lake. Met him at the place called the One More Time Club. <laughs> it was a great club. And... Uh, we got drunk. She was sitting at the bar waiting. I knew she'd be there. She's always sitting at the bar waiting for me. And I met her at the bar, fell in love. I wanted to take her out. She couldn't go out Saturday. She couldn't go out Sunday, so I had to stay till Monday. I was supposed to go home Sunday. I had to stay till Monday to take this girl out I met. So I stayed Monday, took her out on this date. That Monday, by the way, was October 6th, 1981. We got on this date Monday, and it was a bad date. You know you got a bad deal going. When you invite them to go to dinner... And then they really want to eat. Because <laughs> you know? I never eat when I drink, you know. I mean, why put out a fire? You just started, right? So I'm not, I'm not eating. But she's eating and I'm drinking. But I'm a gentleman, so every time I order me a whiskey or her a glass of wine. Well, the woman ain't keeping up. Her wine's stacking up on her, you know. She's busy eating. So now to keep from being embarrassed, i got to drink my whiskey and drink her wine. It was just a bad deal. She finally wanted me to take her home, and I want to take her home. She had no fun that night. And uh, so I dropped her off. It was 10.30 at night. And I bought a gallon of wine because she said I like wine. So I bought a gallon. And uh, she didn't drink any of it. So I knocked on prices and I was staying at Price's house. And he opened the door and said, I thought you had a date. It's 10.30. I said, yeah. Went in there and we drank that wine all night. And I said, now tomorrow night I'm going to hit this town one more time. And I got to get out of here. This have to drink will get me in trouble. So, Tuesday, October 7th, we started drinking at noon. Went to, the, went to the Joker Club. The Joker Club was not a private club. It was a beer bar. I want to be honest about the Joker Club. It, it, it wasn't a very fancy beer bar. Okay, it was a, it was a topless joint. <laughs> and it wasn't a very fancy topless joint. <laughs> the Joker Club had one dancer in the whole place. <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. And you had to be drunk to appreciate her. I mean, it was just a sad deal. We started the Joker Club. And then we went over to the fat. We want to see the fast show at the Hilton. So we go to the Hilton. I remember the fashion show, and then I blacked out. I black out a lot. I black out a lot. Some blackouts, some blackouts are real scary. Some aren't too bad. The thing that determines how scary they are is how long you're blacked out. The longer you're blacked out, the more scary they are. And then the second thing is, is what you're doing when you come out of your blackout. That'll determine how scary the blackout is. Well, I wasn't blacked out very long, but I came out of my blackout at the worst time. The worst time. Those of you that blackout know that the worst time to come out of a blackout is when you're talking to the cops. 
Because you have no idea where you are in the conversation. You really don't. You don't know why they stopped you. You don't know what you've already confessed to. You don't know none of that. And you've got to figure it out without asking them, okay, what are we doing here? You can't, you can't say that to a cop. You just kind of got to figure it out, you know, and that's hard to do. And uh, so I finally figured out they wanted my driver's license. He kept asking for my driver's license. I said, oh, he wants my driver's license. Well, I didn't have a driver's license. They had taken that three DWIs earlier, right? So I just tried to explain to the cop, listen, I'm going to leave my car parked here. I'm going to go right over there. So I'm, I'm going over there. That's where I'm going. I'm going over there. Leave my car parked here. Pick it up in the morning. No problem. Appreciate you stopping. And he would not let me go. And they finally ran my license plate, found out who it was, arrested me. And I'm in lockup. Don't like jail. Don't like nothing about jail. Hate it. But this time they're really mad because they came bond out. See, I knew the system. I knew the deal. You get arrested, you plead not guilty. No matter what you're arrested for, not guilty, right? And if it's just drunk stuff, you go to the OR person. And most of the time, I got out of my OR back in the 70s. You know, sometimes I post, I think the biggest bond I ever had to post was $50 bond. And uh, then you get uh, an attorney. They set a court date. And then you start that postponing process, right? Postpone, postpone, post. What you're hoping, you're hoping the cop dies. That's what you're hoping, you know. <laughs> they never die. And... Uh, Finally, when the attorney says, okay, we can no longer postpone this, you're going to court tomorrow, be there at 10 o'clock, you want to be sure, and the day before court, move. <laughs> That's why I moved. I never went to court. I just moved. So I had all these failure to appear. And so they said, no, we're, let, we're not letting you out this time. You don't come back. You're going to court. So I'm in lockup, don't like lockup, can't get out. And uh, I'm in, finally, a buddy of mine named Stan, Stan's not an alcoholic, don't think about AA or alcoholism, but uh, he had a lot of money and very influential, and he came down to see me, and he says, okay, I've talked to some friends. I can get you out, but you're in my custody. Now, the only way I'll do that is if you promise me that you'll go to treatment because you need help. And I said, oh, Stan, bless you. You are so right. I don't know what it is. I, get, I go down there, I get, get in these bars, and I get drunk, I get in all kinds of trouble, I need help. I guess I'm an alcoholic, Stan. I need help. But I, I can't get any in here. He says, we'll get you out. So I got out of jail. Now, I had no intention of not drinking. I wasn't going to quit. I didn't want to quit. I'm just getting out of jail. And I will do or say anything to get out of jail. So I had to stay with Stan. Next day I get up, he throws me the yellow pages. says, you can go anywhere you want to go, but you got to go to treatment. So I'm looking in the yellow pages. I find the treatment centers in, in, in this Salt Lake. And they had a lot of treatment centers back in the 80s. And I called this one treatment center. And I said, I need to come in for a little treatment. Gal says, well, do you have any insurance? No, no, I don't have any. I haven't worked for three and a half years. You know, I don't have any insurance. She says, well, it's $12,000. Hell, I don't want to stay all year. I mean, I'm not that sick. Okay, I just needed a little treatment, you know? It was very frustrating. I called this one place back in, the, in 81, they wanted $18,000. I was so frustrated, I said, honey, listen, if I had $18,000, I wouldn't need your goddamn treatment, you know? <laughs> it really wouldn't solve my problem. Very frustrating. I finally called this one place, I said, I need to come in for a little treatment. Gas is okay. I said, well, listen, I don't have any insurance. She's okay. 
And I said, well, how much is it? She's a salesperson, so she has to give me the benefits first for to tell the price. So she says, well, when you check in here, you get room, you get board, and you get therapy. Now, we have two kinds of therapy. We have individual therapy with one of our registered counselors, or we have group therapy. And it's $9 a day. And then when you check in here, we apply for food stamps. And we credit the food stamps to the bill. And then we get some state aid. So we, uh, if you do some chores around here that we assign to you, we pay you buck fifty a day. You can pay the buck fifty to the bill. If you want, or you can buy cigarettes. Back then, you can buy cigarettes for buck thirty-five. And uh, we apply that to the bill, uh, which is dropped down about five bucks a day. I couldn't believe the price. I said, well, how long is your waiting list? So those other places that wanted twelve, eighteen thousand, they had thirty to six day waiting list just to get in. So how long is your waiting list? She says, well, "We have a bed for you tonight." <laughs> See, I don't really need to come tonight. Okay. <laughs> she says, "I think you need to come tonight." Okay. Now I got a problem with this place. Think about that. Here they are. They got bargain rates: nine bucks a day, room board therapy. They can't fill their beds. Okay. Now they're high pressure me to get me to come in down there. I'm the consumer here. I got my rights. I said, listen, honey, you make my reservation for Saturday or just forget the whole damn deal. You know? So she did. She made my reservation for Saturday. And I didn't drink. I hung out with Stan, didn't drink. Don't know why I didn't drink, just didn't drink. I think I was afraid to because Stan would put me back in jail if I did. And so I hung out with Stan, went down there Saturday. I drove down Saturday morning, parked in the parking lot. I sat in that parking lot for hours watching him go. I want to see, who went. I want to see what kind of person goes to a $9 day jitter joint, you know? So, <laughs> I'm watching them go in and out of there, all night, in and out, in and out, you know. And you know what? Those guys going in there, they were alcoholics. They look like alcoholics supposed to look. I thought, no wonder. Look at that guy. He's an alcoholic. Look at him. You can tell that guy's an alcoholic. Look at him. You know, they they did not look like y'all look. Y'all don't look like alcoholics. Those guys going in there, they look like alcoholics. And I wasn't an alcoholic, but it fit my budget, so I checked in. And uh, nothing happened Saturday. Just filled out a bunch of paperwork. Got my room. Nice place. It was new. Pretty new place, clean place. That was on Saturday. Sunday, I had my first exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous. Two guys from outside came in. We sat around round tables, just like this, these banquet tables, in the, in the lunchroom. And uh, these two guys chaired the meeting from AA. They talked for a long time. Don't didn't hear a word they said. Didn't pay a bit of attention to them because I'm watching everybody else. See, I'm a real chameleon. I can go to a place, I'll watch what you do, how you act, and I'm going to blend. I'm going to become whatever you need me to be. And so I'm watching to see what everybody else does. Because if I can figure out how you do AA, then I can go do AA and get out of here. Okay? So I'm watching everybody else. What does everybody else do? Nobody wanted to be there. They're all smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, just looking around. Some of them are reading. These two guys talked for a while. Then it was a discussion meeting, and they were sharing. So they started down the row. First guy introduced himself, said, well, my name's Joe B. I'm an alcoholic, and I'll pass. See, because if you pass, you get out real quick. It's a short meeting. Second guy said, my name's Jim S. I'm an alcoholic. I'll pass. Well, I caught on real quick. <laughs> what they do in AA, they give their first name, last initial, admit to the group they're alcoholic, and then pass. There's something magical about many of this group that they're alcoholic. If you're alcoholic, you shouldn't take that burden of alcoholism off your shoulders and sit over there. I mean, that must be the deal, admit to the group. They had it written on the wall, admitted you were powerless over alcohol. So it got to me, I did it right. I said, my name's John A., and I'm an alcoholic. Not a damn thing happened. <laughs> well, obviously, I'm not an alcoholic. 
You know? And if I am an alcoholic, AA has, is not for me. AA must be for real simple-minded, hardcore drunks. That's what AA is. It's for simple-minded people. Nobody with any brains, you know. Now, as distorted a perception as that is of Alcoholics Anonymous, that is my perception of AA. It ain't for me, and I'm not an alcoholic anyway. Okay? So that was on Sunday. Monday, I got me and my counselor, Dale, lovely lady. Talked to Dale for an hour. That was my private counseling session with my private counselor. And it was, a, it was great. We talked. She wanted me to stay two months. <coughs> Dale, 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 Dale. I've been here all weekend, all right? I've been talking to these guys out here. They told me how, what you're doing here, how that first month you're going to break me down, get me to be open and honest with myself. Let me save you a month right there, Dell. I've always been open. I've always been honest. I said, I've, I've got a great mind. It's like a steel trap. I can save you a month right there. Save you a month right there. Don't need to break. And, and these guys have told me they're alcoholics. I've got no reason to doubt they are alcoholics. They look like they probably are alcoholics. I don't think I'm an alcoholic. If I do have a little bit of alcoholism, it's not a, you know, it's manageable. And I'm busy. I can't stay two months still. I'm just too busy to stay two months. She looks at her paperwork and she said, now where are you working? I said, well, I'm not working, but I'm busy. Isn't that true about alcoholics? Isn't that true? Alcoholics are the most busy, unemployed people you ever want to meet in your life. They're there. Go to the meeting Monday, right? Now, the guy's unemployed. He's got nothing to do but get to the meeting on time. And he's late. <laughs> and you say, where have you been? Oh, hell, I've been busy. <laughs> you know? I don't know what we do, but we're busy doing it. We really are busy people. So I said, I'll give you two weeks. Because, see, I'm not going to quit drinking. That's not what I'm doing there. I'm just, I figured treatment time is better than jail time. And I figured I'll do a little bit of treatment. That'll satisfy my obligation to stand. Then I get back free and I'm going off my life. I'm not going to quit. I don't want to quit. I'm just getting out of jail. And I don't tell anybody that, but that's what I'm doing. So she listened to all that BS. Finally, she said, well, we'd better hurry with you. I said, damn right, you better hurry with me. I was on Monday. Tuesday, I go to group therapy. Love group therapy. God, group therapy is great. Wednesday's alcoholic education seminar. They're showing a movie. Yeah, well, I'm not impressed with the movies about drug addiction and alcoholism. They're boring. I find, they're boring to me. Even today, they're boring. So I'm sitting there, all my pride, all my ego, all my contempt, prepared not to like this movie. And the name of the movie they're showing was I'll Quit Tomorrow. So watching that movie, it tore me up. I couldn't believe it. It was like they'd made a movie of my life. And they were showing up to... I related to everything that went on in that movie. I did everything that guy did. I talked the way he talked. I acted the way he acted. I dressed the way he dressed. I drank. I drank the way he drank. I related to everything in that movie. And that was my moment of clarity when I knew the gig was up. Because I related to it. What happened to me that night... It's like we're looking for that definition. What's an alcoholic? How do you know you're an alcoholic? I later found out in AA, see, we don't have a definition of an alcoholic. I couldn't define an alcoholic for you tonight. What we have in AA is a description. See, you can't argue with a description. You can argue with a definition. That's why Webster's got ten definitions for every word, right? 
<laughs> but you can't argue with the description. The most powerful tool God has given Alcoholics Anonymous is our description of the alcoholic. Because it's that description that seems to have the power, as the alcoholic relates to it, to literally strip everything that separates the alcoholic from himself. And I could see me that night like I'd never seen me. I could see me that night like my mother saw me. I could see me that night like my ex-wife saw me. The difference was as I related to it, I could see me. And I knew the gig was up. That was my moment of clarity. When I knew the gig was up. See, the most powerful tool we have is that description. I mean, think how important that description is. Two-thirds of our book, two-thirds of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is what? Descriptions of alcoholics. I mean, why'd they put all those stories in there? Just to make a big book? <laughs> no, it's that important. Because as the description is the alcoholic relates to it that seems to have the power to literally strip everything that separates the alcoholic from himself. And I knew the gig was up. And I wasn't happy about it. Sometimes you'll hear from the podium, somebody will say how when they finally found out they were alcoholic, how relieved they were and how at home they felt. That was not my experience. I was scared to death and pissed. You know, because I'm an alcoholic. My God, what am I going to do? I got to like go get a job. You know, and I, how am I going to survive in a world that scares me to death? I cried all night. I cried because I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm an alcoholic. The realization that I'm an alcoholic was devastating to me. And I stayed there six weeks. Couldn't stay two months. Too busy. Stay two months. I stayed, stayed. When I got out of there, they said, now, a very important part of this is aftercare. You need aftercare. But you're living in Reno, Nevada. We're in, that's 800 miles to come back here. You can't come back here three times a week for aftercare. So we're going to prescribe Alcoholics Anonymous for your aftercare. You go to AA for aftercare. So I drove back to Reno. I got back to the 1st December, 2nd December. I knew two things when I got back there. I knew I was alcoholic and I didn't want to drink. I knew that. And the second thing I knew was... A has got nothing to offer. I mean, because you go there, you your first name, last initial, admit your alcoholic, and then pass, okay? We do, we, I've done that, okay? Don't need to do that anymore. I don't know why I've got to go down there, keep admitting those guys that I'm an alcoholic. But I don't want to drink. So the first time back in town, I call AA. Guy answers the phone. I said, my name is John A, and I'm an alcoholic. Guy well, I'm Bruce. I'm an alcoholic. John, what do you need? And I said, well, listen, I just got out of treatment over in Salt Lake City. I'm living here in Reno, Nevada, and I wanted to call and report in. <laughs> I thought they had me on a computer, you know. <laughs> you know, something to put out a failure to appear on you there as well. He said, well, he said, I'm glad you're here. He said, you want to go to a meeting tonight? It was Thursday night. You want to go to a meeting tonight? I said, yeah, I'll go to a meeting with you. You probably want to meet me. He said, well, I'm not going tonight, but there's a men's stag at the Holt Riverside Casino. Starts at 8.30, third floor, Sierra room. So said, I don't know right where that is. I'll be there at 8. I'll be there early so we can meet because I'm not going. I said, well, call them and let them know, you know, that John A. is coming to their meeting. He said, they'll be there. Don't worry about it. So I show up 20 after 8. First resentment, Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I called, told them I'm coming, made a reservation. The guy didn't call and tell him John A.'s coming. Nobody there said, oh, you must be John A. No. Just some guys smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, waiting for a meeting. I got my coffee, sat down. Pretty soon, an old guy named Red got up to chair me. Red looked like an alcoholic. He had 18 years sober then. He, he talked for a long time, didn't pay a bit of attention to what Red said because I'm watching everybody else. What does everybody else do? And uh, so Red talked for a while, and then he started down the road. They were sharing and discussion meeting. And these guys didn't pass. They talked. 
And I don't know what they talked about. There's nothing we talked about in treatment. In fact, they couldn't even introduce themselves right. Some of them did not give their last initial. Okay? They, they said, my name is John, I'm alcoholic. <laughs> Guy didn't give his last initial. You're supposed to give your last initial. To this thing, you know? Some of them gave their last name. They said, my name is John Allred, I'm alcoholic. But geez. Doesn't that guy know it's an anonymous program? Anon- get it? You don't give your last... Anonymous? So I thought, if those guys don't respect their anonymity, I will. So I didn't look at them. Didn't look at them. Don't know who you are. Don't know who you are. I'm not going to talk to you. If I see you in the street, I'm going to avoid you. Anonymous program. You know? And they're talking about stuff. I don't know what they're talking about. There's nothing we talk about in treatment. I mean, I sat halfway through that meeting. Nobody mentioned we got an XY chromosome deficiency. It became clear to me, these guys have not been to treatment. So it got my turn to share. I thought, well, I'll help them. You know? And I did it right to you. I said, my name is John A. And I'm an alcoholic. And I qualified. I said, listen, I just got out of treatment over in Salt Lake City. And I want you all to know I have the latest, most up-to-date, current information on the disease of alcoholism. It's my second resentment. Red cut me off. said, thank you, John. Went on the next guy. I thought, son of a bitch is jealous. I know stuff he don't know. That's his problem down there. After meeting, some guys come up and shook my hand. They said, we hope you come back. <laughs> I'll be back. They need me down there, you know. Now, I don't know where they was, where I was when they said 90 meetings in 90 days. It's not the way I did it. I did one meeting a week. Every Thursday, I'm done at my men's stag meeting. Now, they will not let me share. But I keep going back. I thought, I'm a hell of a lot younger than Red. He's going to die, then I get to share. Yeah. Now, let me tell you what happens when you go to one meeting a week if you haven't tried that program. One of the things they told me in treatment, which is true, this is true. They said, John, don't drink, Okay. If you don't drink, you're going to feel better. Just don't drink, you'll feel better. And that's true. But they didn't tell me what that meant. If you don't drink, you're going to feel better. You're going to feel everything better. You're going to feel all the pain, all the anger. You're going to feel that shit a whole lot better. I mean, that's why I drink. I don't like to feel better. I feel I drink, so I don't feel that stuff. So I'm walking around, you know, feeling better, going nuts, you know? And so I'm down on, I'm in stag meeting Thursday night, going to my one meeting a week. It was, new, it was Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, Thursday. And they said, now tomorrow's Christmas Day. Those of you got nowhere to go for Christmas dinner, you can go to the Dryers Club. It's over on Wells Street. It's still there. Go to the Dryers Club on Wells for a free Christmas dinner. They're having free. It's over there. Well, I had nowhere to go at Christmas, so I go to the Dryers Club, found it, went in there, ate, and um, smoking a cigarette, drinking a cup of coffee. Here comes a guy. You can see him. You know when they target you? They start walking across the room. I thought, oh, God, what's this guy want, you know? Not my kind of guy. He's just not my, he's an old guy. He's, there's nothing cool about him at all. I like cool guys. This guy's old. And he's fat. He's got a big nose, real weird hair. Not my kind of guy. Comes over to me, introduces himself. His name's Don. Informs me that he's a coordinator of intergroup. I have no idea what that is, but I guess. Whatever, Don. So I started talking with Don, and after talking to Don for just a few minutes, it became clear Don had not been treatment. So I started to tell Don about all the stuff. They would not let me talk about it in my group. He gets a funny look on his face. 
He says, would you like to go to a meeting with me tonight? I said, well, hell, Don, it's Friday. I go Thursdays over the men's stag group. He says, we've got a meeting every night in Reno. And in that month I've been going to AA, I'd heard something about, this is a spiritual program. It's a spiritual program. Okay? Spiritual pro- it's Christmas. I can go twice this week. It won't hurt. You know? So Don comes by, gets me. We've got state ho- they got a meeting on State Hospital on Friday night, 7 o'clock out there. We've got State Hospital. We walk into the meeting. And they give you a raffle ticket when you go to that meeting. And at the end of the meeting, they raffle off a big book or as Bill sees it. Okay, so I get my raffle ticket. <laughs> Great, I'm gambling now. It's my kind of meeting. Walk into the meeting. They got women in that meeting. First meeting I've been to with women in the meeting. I didn't know that other men. I didn't. I thought it was a man. I've been to minister out joint. I've been to men's stag meeting. Now we've got women in the meeting. Immediately <laughs> adopted that as my home group. I thought, damn. Why am I going Friday, Thursday when I come here on Friday, you know? So I uh, had a meeting. I don't know what they talked about because I'm busy praying. Because although I have a great mind and I read real good, okay, I had forgot to get a big book. Now, this is it, man. I got my raffle ticket. I'm winning the book. I'm probably the only guy here tonight without a big book. And it's Christmas. God is going to let me win that. This is going to be God's gift to me on Christmas. I'm winning that book. So I prayed all hour for that book. I mean, by the time that meeting's over, nobody's been praying like I've been praying. The book is mine. I want the book. Okay? <laughs> They had the raffle, raffle off the big book, third resentment in Alcoholics Anonymous. Some little gray-haired lady, 25 years sober, wins my book. I thought, what's she doing winning my book? She got five in my home collection. She's so old, can't even read anymore. Wins my book. So I'm storming out of there. Before I get out of there, that little lady comes up and gives me that book. That's where I got my big book. I took that book home that night. And I used to say that I took the book home that night and I read that book from cover to cover. So if you ever heard me say that, or if you ever get hold of one of the golfer state tapes, old tapes, where I said that on a tape, please believe me that when I said that, hell, I believed it. You know, I really did. <laughs> <laughs> then I got involved in the big books. Did you not believe the chapters they got in that book? Unbelievable. You got a chapter in the book, chapter to the wives. Okay. Well, I wasn't a wife, didn't have a wife, didn't want a wife. Okay. <laughs> didn't read that chapter. Okay. They got a chapter in the book, chapter to the employer. Hell, I'm not an employee. Then read that chapter. They got a chapter in the book, chapter to the agnostic. Hell, I wasn't agnostic. I knew God real well. Then read that chapter. Well, I want to tell you, if you just read chapter three and chapter five, you can read that book tonight. It won't take you long to do it. It really won't. You'll be able to do it. But the next day, this guy calls me up, takes me to another meeting. Every day, this guy's calling me on the phone, taking me to a meeting. And I don't want to go. But he doesn't ask. He just calls me up and says, I'll pick you up in 20 minutes. Click, hang up. I'm thinking, I don't want to go to a meeting. I went to a meeting yesterday. You know? But if I don't show up, what's he going to say about me? He's going to talk about me behind my back to the group. I've got to go defend myself. So I wait. He picks me up. We go to a meeting. Now, an interesting thing happened. I didn't have a sponsor then. Didn't work any steps. The only change in my life is I'm going to a meeting every single day. And an interesting thing happened. I don't only feel better, but I feel good. Just by going to a meeting every day. I hadn't felt both those things at the same time in years without alcohol. You know? 
And, and he's, of course, I'm just hanging out in her group during the day. And all of a sudden, sobriety started putting on flesh and bones. I started meeting other alcoholics. I started getting excited about going to those damn meetings, you know. I'm going to inner group. I'm drinking coffee during the day, meeting other alcoholics, going to meeting at night. I'm getting excited about it. And it's embarrassing. I'll tell you, I was really embarrassed. Because I know I'd, Don would come by and get me. I'd get in his car. I feel like a little kid, you know. Because we're driving to the meeting. And I'd say, Don, you think we can go get ice cream tonight? <laughs> We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Just bizarre. But I'm down in a group as a week later. It was, it was New Year's Eve, Thursday. New Year's Eve, I'm going to my men's stag meeting. I'm hanging out in a group during the day, drinking coffee. New Year's Eve, I'm going to my men's stag meeting on New Year's Eve. And the phone rings. I grab the phone. This young kid named Glenn. Glenn's 17, wants not to stay sober New Year's Eve. I said, why? I mean, my God, Glenn, you're 17. It's New Year's Eve, okay? Nobody gets sober New Year's Eve. Call tomorrow. You know, we'll be here tomorrow. Don grabs that phone away from me. <laughs> That's when he passed the rule of central office. You have to have six months or more sobriety to answer the phone. <laughs> they got it printed on the wall. It's still there. Six months or more sobriety to answer this phone. Don talked to him. I don't know what he said. Did not give him my phone number. Gave him his phone number. Not give him my phone number. But the next day, Don calls me and says, Hey, Glenn stayed sober last night. He wants to go to a meeting today. I thought, great, my first 12-step call. So Don comes and gets me. We get Glenn. We're going out to State Hospital where I got my big book. We're arriving in the car, and I'm on my first 12-step call, and Don is not saying a word. Don's just driving the car. I thought, they're not to make a 12-step call. Hell, I got to do it all. I just got to do it all. You know? So I start to prepare Glenn for AA. You got to prepare him for AA. You know, whiskey ain't done the job, so John's got to prepare him. So I'm preparing Glenn for I'm telling Glenn all about it. Glenn, you're going to love this, man. You get women your first meeting, okay? I didn't know they were there for two months, but we got women in AA. We're going to be there tonight. You're going to love it. You want to come back here every single Friday. we got the best women of this group right here. You want to come back here. Because I knew that would appeal to a 17-year-old, so I shared that with him. And then I said, and then, Glenn, we're going to get a raffle ticket when we get there. And at the end of the meeting, we're going to raffle off the big book, or as Bill sees it. And if God loves you, you'll win the book. You know? <laughs> Don does here where Don just drives to the meeting. So we get to the meeting, we get a raffle tickets, we sit down, they have something, I don't know what to talk about because I'm busy praying for Glenn. I thought, come on, God, let Glenn win the book. Let him win the book. If Glenn can win the book, after I've told him all about this, he's going to know that God is working in his life, he'll stay sober forever. And not that it matters, but you know, <laughs> I would have 100% 12-step cost success rate. I'll be able to write articles in the grapevine about how to have 100% 12 step call success rate. It'll just be wonderful there. So I had the meeting. I prayed hard for Glenn. At the end of the meeting, we went to have the raffle, raffle off the big book. I won the book. <laughs> Don turned to me. He says, see how that works? I said, yeah, I signed it and gave it to Glenn. That's where Glenn got his big book. Okay? And Glenn's sober today because uh, I gave him that book. That's why I sober <laughs> <laughs> Now, that little experience early in my sobriety taught me a lot. Because it taught me how God works. See, God works through people. See, I could have won the big book that first night. There'd been one winner. Whenever God works, it's a win-win deal. There are always two winners when God works. It's a win-win deal when God works. God works through people. When I work through people, it becomes a win-win deal. See, if I win the big book the first night, there's one winner, me. But that little old lady won by being able to share with me, and I won by being able to receive from her. Two winners. A week later, two winners. I won by being able to share with Glenn. And Glenn wanted by being able to receive from me. Two winners. God works through people. See, by working through people, he gets twice the result for the same effort. Very efficient God. 
very efficient guy. You know? It also taught me how Alcoholics Anonymous works. Because Alcoholics Anonymous is one drunk sharing with another. And when that happens, guys, that's the magic to our deal. When one drunk shares to another. And there are two winners when that happens. The drunk doing the sharing, the drunk doing the receiving. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. When one drunk shares with another. See, I've told that story a thousand times, I guess 21 years. And every time I tell that story, I remember that moment of clarity when I knew the gig was up. I'm totally convinced that all of us here that are sober and alcoholics anonymous and I have had that moment of clarity when you knew the gig was up. I'm equally convinced that those that come to AA for a while and leave and are out there tonight drinking had that moment of clarity when they knew the gig was up. What's the difference between those of us that are sober and those of us that come and then leave? We both had that moment of clarity. I think what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous is really pretty simple. What we do in here is we keep that moment alive. We keep it alive. See, as I've shared my moment with you, what have you thought about? And I remember my moment, what have you remembered as you related to it? And when I'm on that side of the podium, and one of y'all is up here, and you're sharing your moment of what it was like and what happened, and you're keeping your moment alive. By the way, isn't this the perfect program for people whose root problem is they're selfish, self-centered? Because <laughs> when you're up here remembering your moment, I'm so self-centered, what am I thinking about? <laughs> Screw your deal, I remember that. It's my moment, you know? We keep it alive. And nowhere can you keep that moment alive but when one drunk shares with another. You can't keep that moment alive by sharing with your therapist. It ain't a win-win deal. They don't need to hear it. My life depends on hearing about your moment. Because as you keep your moment alive, I remember mine. We keep it alive. You can't keep your moment alive by sharing with your doctor. They don't need to hear it. But when one alcoholic shares with another, we keep that moment alive. And what have we talked about? We want to talk about two things. How powerless I was over alcohol and how unmanageable my life was. We keep that moment alive. And my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous has just been an incredible, incredible time. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I moved to Dallas. I was a year and a half sober when I moved to Dallas in 1983. And uh, my whole life came together in Dallas. I've been there since 1983. I'm married in Dallas. I I have a great wife. We have a business in Dallas. And I have accomplished... The fact that I had, the only thing I've done for 21 years in my whole life, I haven't done anything for 21 years except Alcoholics Anonymous. I haven't been married for 21 years. If you added them all up, it wouldn't total 21 years, you know? <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't had the same job for 21 years. I haven't had the same phone number for 21 years. The only thing I've ever done for that, for 21 years, is been an active participant of Alcoholics Anonymous for 21 years. And that's the greatest blessing I've ever had in my life. Because I've been able to associate with people in Alcoholics Anonymous I never would have, like the book says, with people who don't normally mix. You know? And one of the great, the great discussions I had, when we were, there were a bunch of us sitting around talking one night. We were, you ever have one of those conversations where you're deciding what's the most important step you know, of all the steps, we've got 12 steps. What's the most important step in Alcoholics Anonymous? What do you got to do? So there's a lot of step one, obviously. 
you gotta take step one. You, you know, anytime you slip, you gotta go back to step one. Take step one, you haven't taken step one yet, you gotta take step one's the most important step. So this is, nah, it's not. Step two. Step one's the problem. Step two's the solution to the problem. Step two's the most important step. You gotta take step two. No, no, I'm sorry. But step three, because step three is where we turn our will and life over the solution is step two. That's the surrender step. Step three is the most important. So you got to take step three, step three. No, the, wait a minute. The book says it's four and five. If you not take these steps, you more than likely will return to your old ways. Four and five is the most important. So you got to take a fourth step. That's all there is to it. Most important step is the fourth step. You got to take a fourth step. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. The book says six and seven. These are the steps separate the men from the boys. Six and seven is the most important step. You got to take those, get rid of those character defects. No, wait a minute. The promise don't come after step nine. Step nine is the most important step. Step nine is the most important step. You got to take step nine. Well, the real spiritual people know it's 10, 11, and 12, right? They live in 10. The maintenance steps. You're not doing your maintenance. You've got to watch those maintenance steps. What's the most important step? They asked the carpenter that same question 2,000 years ago. They, had, they only had 10 commandments. Well, we don't mess with 10. We've got to have 12, you know? <laughs> but they asked him out of these 10 commandments, what's the most important commandment? These were Pharisees. Now, Pharisees, they were letter of the law. They were letter of the law people. They're the ones that would say, okay, you've got to keep the Sabbath day holy. If you march through a corn patch on Sunday and you knock down some ears of corn, did you work? Letter of the law, screw the spirit, you know? We've got some AA Pharisees, you know? They want to discuss in a discussion meeting the difference between character defects and shortcomings. <laughs> you know? What's the difference between an obsession and a compulsion? You know, letter of the law. That's... Let's get the dictionary and find out what that means, you know. Well, they asked the carpenter, these Pharisees said, out of the Ten Commandments, what's the most important commandment? You know what the carpenter said? He says, we only got two. We only got two commandments. The first commandment is to love God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it, to love thy neighbor as thyself. And out of the twelve steps, we only got two requirements. The book says there's only two requirements that you got to do. You know, first one is you need to find God. Second one is you need to clean house. Find God and clean house. That's what we got to do in here. We only got two steps: find God and clean house. See, in steps one, two, and three, we find God. In steps 4 through 10, we clean house. In 11 and 12, we increase the conscious contact of the God we found in steps 1, 2, and 3. And what's interesting is, is that there are only two commandments. To love God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Three things to do, but only two. Love God, love yourself, and love your neighbor. You love your neighbor not more than yourself or less than yourself, but as yourself. See, in steps one, two, and three, I learn to love God. In steps four through ten, I learn to love myself. In eleven and twelve, particularly twelve of working through is I learn to love my neighbor. It's the same program. Love God, love yourself, and love your neighbor. 
Of all the gifts Alcoholics Anonymous has given me, the most powerful gift is that gift of love. Because God is love. See, because when I got here, I want to promise you, I did not love God. I did not love myself. And I sure as heck didn't love you. At all. But by being in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have learned to love. And I've learned that God is love. And my favorite poem is the one that says, There is the love of a man for his wife and the love of a child for his mother. But there is no love like the kind of love of one alcoholic for another. And I love you all very much. Let's have a great weekend. Thank you.